0: Welcome, golf fans. You're listening to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, broadcasting from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. In this episode, I'm going to cover some unrelated topics, like wedding bachelor parties, drinking, music on the golf course, fighting on the golf course, and bridge ball. And since many of these things have nothing to do with each other, I'm just going to label this the junk drawer of golf. I've seen a lot of unusual things happen at Charleston National that I haven't experienced at any PGA events, charity events, private clubs, or resort courses. I'm sure you all have your junk drawer of golf stories, which I'd love to hear. Email them to me at rbeaston21 at gmail.com. Send me some of your crazy pics to my Instagram account, Tales from the First Tee. I mean, the crazier, the better. I'd love to broadcast them in future podcasts. We see a lot of wedding and bachelor parties in Charleston. So what's the fundamental difference between the two? Well, at a bachelor party... You tend to have three more cases of beer, another case of fireballs, with the absence of a father-in-law. Bachelor parties are a thing in Charleston. Whenever I get the morning tea sheets for the weekend, I tend to look for multiple groups that have the same name. When I see that and I don't recognize the name, I know it's got to be a bachelor party. I personally happen to appreciate the youthful energy, the gambling games, the boasting on the first tea box, and the stories of their exploits from King Street the night before. I mean, guys in Charleston are outnumbered by co-eds, at least two to one. Some say eight to one, but I think that might be wishful thinking. Anyway, Charleston is a target-rich environment, surrounded by innkeepers, restaurateurs, and barkeeps hoping for another good night. So that usually translates to a lot of guys coming to the first tee box with horrible hangovers. I mean, guys that can't wear enough sunglasses to block the sun's rays. Some guys even come still drunk, but God, they're looking for a good time. By the time the groups start hitting the back nine, bets have been won and lost. The cart girls have restocked their carts several times over. And in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man is king. And that guy is usually the guy who drinks the least, is the scorekeeper, and miraculously is the guy who tends to win all the money coming off of 18. More times than not, bachelor parties like to combine groups to create six-sums, eight-sums, and sometimes the entire party playing one hole at a time. As much as our starters help to explain the rules of foursomes only on the first tee box, It's almost guaranteed that the Lord of the Flies rules apply and the bachelor party creates their own rules on the course. And I know this because when I'm sitting at the first tee box and I see our Rangers in a frenetic pace driving back and forth, I know they've been called. Somebody who lives on the edge of the course has seen this gang mentality called into the pro shop and the Rangers are set out to try try and set them straight. But that's not an easy task to do. During the pandemic, when we enforced a rule where each person had to take their own golf cart, it wasn't unusual between 11 and 12 o'clock in the morning, we'd run out of carts. So we have to depend on the people playing golf coming off of 18, bringing their carts back, so we could sterilize them, set them up, and get them ready for the next golfers. And I know when I'm sitting at the first tee box, when I don't see golf carts coming back from 18, most likely it's a bachelor party where all the players stay on the 18th green waiting for the rest of the players to play through so they could laud them, applaud them, throw things at them. It's just part of the party. But our Rangers and Marshals have a job to do, so they have to go out and get the guys off of the 18th green and some handle it a little bit more aggressively than I do. To me, the objective is get these guys off the course, get them back to the parking lot and let the rest of the golfers play through without having any fights. I recall one Saturday afternoon, I was called from the pro shop to find out why 12 of our golf carts were still on the course after being out for over five hours. When I drove to the 18th green, anticipating there was going to be a traffic jam by the green, I didn't see any carts. While there were no carts on the 18th, I saw 12 carts sitting over by the 14th hole, which is not too far from the 18th, another par 3. When I saw them there, I was thinking to myself, five and a half hours to play 13 holes? This is really a slow round. But as I came up to approach them, one of the guys came over to me before I could say anything and said, hey, look, we just finished 18 holes. We want to do a playoff, and what we're trying to do is play closest to the pin for $100. Now, when they said that, I looked up on the green thinking I'm going to see 14 balls up on the green, and I didn't see any. No balls were on the green, and I learned that most of them had already hit. About that time, one of the loudest players yelled out at me and challenged me to join them. I mean, this created a groundswell of yells and chants. Do it! do it, do it. I mean, at that moment, I thought, one, I could be a hard-ass and ask them to leave. Two, I could refuse and just let them finish. Or three, I could walk up to the loudmouth and say, okay, you're on, a hundred bucks. Little did I know, this guy was the best golfer in the party even though he was the drunkest guy in the party. He immediately accepted my offer, walked back to his bag, pulled out a six iron, hits it 30 feet from the pin, and it was the only ball on the green. And the entire party started yelling and yelling and then yelling at me, do it, do it. I painted myself into the corner and I only had one choice. I walked over to the loudmouths bag, picked out a club, stepped up to the tee box, hit the shot of my life. Maybe five feet from the pin, spun it back a few feet, and the crowd went apeshit. They came up, they're high-fiving me, they're patting me on the back. And mind you, this is in the middle of the pandemic, and the least thing I want to do is high-five or get patted on the back and have people breathing on me. But this was a moment. So I turned to the loudmouth guy and said, Hey, look, that was for pride. Do me a favor. Get these guys in their carts and bring the carts back to the clubhouse. And he did it, and I felt really good about it. Now, I think if I took a bucket of balls to the same tee box and tried to hit the same shot, I might hit one in a hundred. But at the time, this guy laid the gauntlet down and I was just trying to do my job. So wedding parties are a little more tame than bachelor parties. They have the same profile of players with the addition of a father-in-law and maybe a few other family members. This particular weekend, we had a wedding party with mixed couples. Now in the first tee box, you could usually see how people play. So I'm watching them tee off and you know, some of them seemed like they were really novice. And so I'm thinking to myself, man, this is going to be a long round of golf. So as the day progressed, there was this buzz at the first tee box as people were passing by. Hey, did you hear about that gal who hit a hole in one? I'm like, oh man, this is great. I later learned that one of the gals in the foursome that I saw tee off that I thought was a novice, hit a hole in one on the second hole. I mean, that's like 100 yards over the marsh. I mean, this lady has the universe on her side. And that wedding party, man, they had a lot to celebrate that weekend. And they started at the golf course. So you know, our cart girls were part of that celebration. And yeah, they had a good weekend too. Now that leads me to the next topic and that's drinking and driving and as driving on a golf course lore has it that we play 18 holes of golf because it takes 18 shots to polish off a fifth of scotch and if you take a shot per hole by the time you get to the 18th you finish the bottle off and you've pretty much finished yourself off for the day because swinging a golf club launching a ball into the air to land and roll exactly where you want it to is hard and unnatural. That's why we see so many beginners whiffing the ball, topping it, or clanking it to places we didn't even know existed on the golf course. The concentration it takes to hit the ball in the right direction is similar to a sharpshooter hitting a bullseye 200 yards away. Any mismovement or unfocused thought usually translates into a miss. And while there's not much drinking and sharpshooting, at least as far as I know, in golf, it's a social sport that takes frustration to a whole new level. All of your playing partners get to watch your skills during the match. I mean, after a few holes of mishits, shanks, water donations, power putts way past the hole, it only makes sense to add some swing juice. It calms the savage beast. Or in some, in some situations, it sparks a savage feast. And that all depends on your tolerance level and your buddy's tolerance level of you. Now, we've all seen people with different alcohol tolerance levels. We've seen happy drunks. We've seen mean drunks. But I got this really cool story about my buddy Timmy in Chicago. This guy is one of the only golfers I've ever met and played with that actually gets better the more he drinks. Kind of like a John Daly story. He keeps warm cans of beer in his golf bag just in case he's out there and there's no cart girl. I mean, it's crazy, right? Maybe not. So Timmy and I were playing against these other two partners, and after the first nine holes, we're winning the bet because Tim is even par. Well, the other twosome had just about enough of that. And when the cart girl came around, when we got to the 10th tea box, they must have ordered a case of beer. And what they were trying to do is keep feeding Timmy beers to get him off his game. So they give him one or two beers on 10. Timmy birdies 10. They give him another beer on 11. He birdies 11. They give him another beer. He eagles. He birdies, he birdies. I mean, they basically threw up the white flag and Timmy just kept smiling and saying, hey, you got any more beers? I mean, little did they know that Timmy played golf at University of Virginia and he played for this coach, Dr. Bob Rotella, who's become a very well-known mental coach author. Tim shared that Dr. Bob was a big fan of clearing the mechanism Kind of like Billy Chappell in Love of the Game. Tim found that Miller Lite was his Sherpa to eliminate distraction. I've played with a lot of other golfers that stimulate their game with a few beers here and there. But it always reminds me of one of my high school lacrosse coaches during a hot practice one day on a very hot day. Told us we could take a water break and as we're walking over to the water fountain he told us, hey guys, just wet the dust, don't make mud. Which reminds me, I've seen a few golf carts, tits up in ponds, which always suggest to me a blood alcohol level greater than .08. And somebody who said to the cart girl, yeah, I'll have another. I think it's rare to see a party of golfers with the absence of alcohol. And that reminds me of a time when I was invited to go play this golf outing event In Green Lake, Wisconsin, it was an annual event that these guys had been going to year after year. And this golf course was owned by a very religious couple that prohibited the sale of alcohol on the golf course. They also had signs that would suggest no bringing coolers, no bringing alcohol on the course. I mean, watching our guys sneak beer onto the golf course was like watching the Navy SEALs do a covert operation. I mean, how can you have a guy's trip without swing juice? And after 90 holes of golf in two and a half days, we needed something, anything to kill the pain. Now, as a golf ranger, I find that shepherding drunk golfers is a delicate operation. I always try to find the soberest one in the bunch and deputize him to corral his buddies. We've only had to call the police a few times when things got out of hand but I like to try to head things off at the pass before it escalates into fisticuffs. And usually the way we're alerted that there's a problem on the course is some members that are playing behind a drunk group of people or homeowners that are on the perimeter of the course, see it, call in the pro shop, and then we get a call to go out and fix the problem. I mean, we're a semi-private course, and we still adhere to the code of conduct for most golf courses. Included in that is dress code. On a fairly busy day one weekend, the pro shop gives me a call and says, hey Rich, we got a guy riding around and he's got no shirt. I was hoping it was a girl, but you could only dream. Anyway, I had to go out and confront this player who was playing golf without his shirt. I get to the hole and I kind of wait for him to come off the green. He's with his buddies, and he knows he shouldn't be playing without a shirt, but he's a little arrogant, and he's a little drunk. So he sees me approaching him, and he starts getting loud and a little defensive as he's coming towards me. We start having a little conversation. I suggest that, hey, look, we are five miles from the beach. If you want to take your shirt off, go right ahead. I mean, there are a lot of girls on the beach. You'll have a great time, but here, if you want to play golf, we have this thing about wearing shirts. Is that okay with you? I must have said it the right way because he started laughing and went back to his cart, put his shirt on. I go, hey, man, where are you from? He goes, hey, dude, I'm from Newport Beach, and we always play golf like this. And well, I lived in California for 12 years. I lived by Newport Beach, and nobody I know was playing golf without their shirts. But we talked about bars. We talked about Dennis Rodman living in Newport Beach, and, After a while, he was high-fiving me. Again, I hate doing this in the pandemic, but it was the right thing at the right moment. He got back in his cart. He wasn't a problem the rest of the day. Again, I didn't want to solve one problem and create a bigger problem. And hey, I was 23 sometime in my life and I did a lot of stupid things, so he got off easy. And why look for areas of disagreement? Why not just look for common ground? I mean, don't we have enough things to disagree on during an election year? A relatively new trend in golf is playing music through Bluetooth technology. Other than Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack, nobody back then played music on a golf course until just recently. Now it's commonplace for one in four groups to blast their music through their portable speakers. Bose, JBL, UE, Lytle, Puma Orange, of course. You know, something Ricky Fowler can promote. I mean, why not just blast music for four to five hours, making the golf experience more entertaining? And I happen to love to play music when I play. It just kind of soothes me when I'm swinging the club. It's also great background sound when you're in a foursome and and a lot of times on weekends you have to wait. I mean, it's kind of nice to have a little music in your golf courts while you're talking and waiting for the next shot. I happen to like music in the background for most activities. Most sporting events you attend use music as their energizer and galvanizer. Most college football teams have a music clip played before you enter the stadium. At my first Virginia Tech football game, I experienced a feel of 66,233 fans yelling at ACDC's Enter the Sandman. And man, was that a rush. much better than watching 66,000 strong welcome there, Hokies. Like many of you, I've also had the opportunity in Chicago to sit in a darkened arena when that theme song called "Sirius" deafens the crowd before they announce the players. Music to me has always had a way of setting the tone for the moment. So why don't people like music being played during golf? I, mean, I love to hear music when I'm traveling between shots or at the tee box ...when we're waiting a tee off. Whenever I practice, I always have my AirPods in my ear... ...listening to my favorite music. I mean, it soothes me. It gives me something to focus on. It eliminates certain distractions. And I just happen to like almost anything wireless. To me, wires are just an entanglement. So, with the invention of AirPods and wireless headphones... Our lives have changed forever. So I digress. I'm out playing one time and meet up with another threesome, uh, guys that I've known for a while and I really like playing with. And I've got my speaker blasting the kind of music I like. And my buddy happens to like Snoop Dogg. So he's playing his Snoop Dogg music and I'm playing my, let's call it blues or jazz music. And when we get two or three T boxes into the game, he's playing one thing. I'm playing another. Neither one of us are backing down. And when you hear the two sounds together, it's a horrible sound. So one of his playing buddies just looked up and said, hey, could somebody decide which of you are going to play your music? Because together, this just sounds like shit. So I figured I met up with them, I turned my music off, and we listened to Snoop Dogg the rest of the way. I like Snoop. I think technology is so fast and social etiquette is so slow to catch up that it takes us a while to realize we're bugging each other, we're annoying each other. And if you don't believe me, just observe people in airports and on planes when they talk on their cell phones. Or go to a restaurant and watch an entire table of youths with their heads buried in their phones. I mean, yikes, baby. Usually, loud music doesn't lead to fights on a golf course. But that doesn't mean fights don't happen. Fighting in golf is not like hockey unless you're Happy Gilmore and Bob Barker. Golfers rarely come to blows. But it's not unheard of. Well, in my experiences... It always has to do with the bet. And the bet could be as small as $2. I was playing a few months ago with two brothers that I've played with for the last several years. And these two guys are really good athletes. But they seem to have very little in common. And I think they're annoyed with each other because they've been competing with each other in soccer, in tennis, in golf their whole lives. And they've just about had enough of each other. They know exactly when the other one's trying to take advantage, and it usually leads to a, a yelling match, but rarely does it lead to fisticuffs. So we're playing, and we get to this match, and one of the brothers kind of does what John Rom did in his third round last weekend where he picks his ball up, and he forgot to mark it. Well, the other brother that didn't do that called him on it and said, that's a one-stroke penalty. And they start arguing with each other and start arguing. They kind of calm down. We get to the next tea box. It's brought up again. Next thing you know, one of the brothers grabs the other one by the neck. And it looks like he's going to choke him out. I mean, what would cause two adults to go to fisticuffs over golf? But when a bet's involved, it just changes somebody. I mean, people react differently when they think, There's an uneven playing advantage or somebody's trying to take advantage of them. I mean, it's crazy. Two dollars and people are going at it. (laughs) I just laughed. I'd love to hear your stories about fighting, drinking, music, bachelor parties, anything out of the ordinary on a golf course. I'd like to hear it. Send them to me and I'd love to broadcast them email me at rbeaston21 at gmail.com. You've been listening to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, from Charleston, South Carolina. I'd like to hear from you soon.